Hey. Well, you don't need me now. That song has been the, the message that you all really need to all of your hearts. I was uh, at the Nazarene annual assembly yesterday on much harder seats than yours. On Friday as well, I spent two... So it's, if I have to stretch me back occasionally this morning. But uh, we only seemed to sing on the last two days. We only sang very modern hymns. And they got much less interesting tunes than the, one we've sung, the ones we've sung this morning. But still, the message of the love of Jesus and our need to come to him. Now, did you ever have, or maybe you still have, did you ever have a globe like that? <laughs> My uh, mum bought me one when I was probably about 12 or something like that. She, she was always doing things to educate me. I don't think it ever worked. And I never understood why it was on a, a tilt like that. I've, I've learned since, but I never understood why it was on a tilt like that. But I discovered, just by playing around with it, that if you rotated that... There we are. If you rotated that, you could get it in such a position that uh, it was nearly all filled with land and with an absolute minimum amount of water. I might be pointing that. There we are. Have I got one more? Yeah, there you go. So that was about the best I could do. I could fill the view almost with land. And it contained everywhere of importance. I mean, forget America and forget Australia, but otherwise... That was potentially the whole world that the Romans of Paul's time could have got to. Uh, and then I looked where the centre of it was. Hmm. Now, if you have buried your treasure on a treasure island somewhere, what do you do to make sure you can always remember where the treasure's been buried you mark it with a cross, don't you? So you'll forget that, won't you? Because I wouldn't want you all rushing there to find my treasure afterwards. But you mark the spot with a cross. What have I got there? I have got a cross in Jerusalem. The very centre of the world is the cross in Jerusalem. That's a thought to take home with you, isn't it? Empty cross, of course, but the cross at the very centre of the world, the, sorry, the cross in Jerusalem is the very centre of the world. Let me read just a few words from Psalms in Psalm 48, where it says, Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise, in the city of our God, his holy mountain. It is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels. He has shown himself to be her fortress. And moving on a little bit to verse 8 in Psalm 48. It says, as we have seen, 
As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God. God makes her secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Walk about in Zion. Go round her. Count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. View her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. The wonder of the ancient Jerusalem uh, that the Jews so revered as the centre of their society, the centre of their religion, the very place where God in their eyes dwelt. And yet, for us too, Jerusalem, the place of that cross. And you may just have noticed one verse in there where it's suggested that the praise of God should go out from that place to all nations. Now, the Jews tended to be rather parochial, of course. Uh, We are God's people. No one else counts. Romans, dogs. Gentiles, fuel for the fires of hell. But the biblical idea does not centre on the Jews alone. Verse 10, it said, we've just read, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Wasn't just the Jews. Spreading out like beams of light from a lighthouse from Jerusalem and its temple. And don't forget God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 12.3 he said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, I don't know how the Jews of Jesus' day thought that that promise would be carried out. But the fact is that Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation and it's from that people that the Lord Jesus arose. And he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and out to the uttermost parts of the world. So although there is a sense in which Jerusalem there is the very centre of the uh, of, of the world uh, and the cross in Jerusalem it's not Jerusalem itself it's the Lord Jesus crucified, dead and buried is the very centre of our whole world and the glorious gift of salvation has now spread out to every part of it <clears throat> the Jews always did want God's praise to be sung by all nations because they, as God's people, want to be the top dog of all that, militarily, politically, and, spiritual, and spiritually. And they recalled all the victories that God had given them against their enemies. Although when you look back, most of those were just in the time of David and Solomon. And for much of the history of the Jews, they were under the um, rule of foreigners like Egypt, the Philistines, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, you name it almost, and they ruled over the Jews. But the Jews always had this picture of themselves being at the pinnacle of power under God. And you know, despite the fact that the Jews were so often and through so much of history uh, 
ruled by other nations, despite all the odds, the Jews are still a people, a nation, a clearly defined ethnic group, and they still have Jerusalem, or at least half of it, as their capital city. Now, there is something special about God's people, the Jews. There is something even more special about God's people in Jesus. So the blessings that God promised to all the people on earth through Abraham, they've not been achieved through the Jews as they might have wanted it, but they have been achieved from that cross in Jerusalem. They've been achieved through the Christian church. Okay, Jerusalem may not be geographically the centre of the earth. Uh, If you try it yourself with a globe, you you might find a very slightly different place. And of course, we can't forget America and everywhere else. But nevertheless, the cross and all it stands for is right at the heart of the whole of society and civilization. I mean, even our calendar revolves around that cross. B.C., and AD. And what's the dividing line? The dividing line is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we all know what BC means. It means before Christ. I discover that many people have forgotten what AD stands for. And I've had one or two rather strange ideas about what AD stands for. Of course, it's Latin. It means Anno Domini. And it means in the year of our Lord. Well, I wonder if you've noticed recently, you may have, you may not have, that people are trying to get rid of, in fact they more or less have, in all uh, modern writings, on the BBC, in newspapers, people do not use BC and AD any longer. They use BCE and CE. Have you noticed that? Now what does that mean? The CE means common era. Because even though various people in their own lands and their own society, whether it's the Jews or the Muslims or the Japanese or the Chinese, so many different people have their own dating system. But when you're talking about the whole world and you have to combine together as a whole world, uh, the common era, the common way of dating is that half of my picture, CE, the common era. And of course, BC, although it's still got BC there, BCE means before the common era. So these people who've managed to change our language from BC and AD to BCE and CE, they've managed to get rid of the Latin, the Anno Domini. They've got rid of the idea of the Lord, Domini or Dominus. Uh, They've got rid of the name of Christ in before Christ. Hey, hooray, they've got rid of Jesus. Hang about, folks. Is that me? No. What's that dividing line? Any longer. We've got rid of Jesus out of that lot. What is the dividing line between BCE and CE? It's still the. So, the 
cross in Jerusalem, the empty cross in it's the center. But never forget, it's an empty cross. And that leads us to think of Jesus' resurrection. Let's have a look in the first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15. And I read from verse 3 to verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. A whistle. Well, I might be picking up mine. I'll tell you what. I wondered whether it was just in my hearing. Oh, that sounds very odd now. I wondered whether it was just in my hearing. No, it's not. It's still there. However, if it's not worrying you too much, I'll not let it worry me. So, <laughs> where am I? We have the cross, the centre of the world, the centre of history, and the place where Jesus was crucified and risen again. No, two things. Oh, dear. One time you have a light falling on me, next time I've got this whistling all around me. <laughs> Note two things out of what Paul has just written in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul has received this teaching. And what did he talk about? He talked about uh, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to all those people. Paul has received this teaching, he said, this summary of Christian belief and he's now going to pass it on. There's a good point as well. You receive it, pass it on. It's not absolutely certain quite what he means when he says he receives it. Maybe he received it by the Holy Spirit speaking to his own heart. Uh, but very likely, of course, he received it from the apostles uh, with whom he spent so much time before he went off on his own missionary journeys. Uh, but the second thing to note is that the basis of the gospel, the basis of the whole of Christian teacher, uh, teaching is that Jesus died, was buried and was raised and appeared to witnesses. The resurrection is absolutely crucial. Jesus lives and ever hears our prayers, ever saves and ever intercedes for us. The resurrection is absolutely crucial. 
There are those who seek to totally destroy Christianity, like Paul before his creation, before his conversion. And they tell us that this resurrection stuff is a load of nonsense. It was all made up years and years later. But uh, they've got a lot of trouble there, you know. Such arguments have real problems. Where did the Christian church come from at all in the first place? In AD 30, oh, AD. In AD 30, I'm going to say it. In AD 30, the Christian church didn't exist. By AD 60, it was all over the place. Uh, There were so many people that Nero was able to blame them for the great fire of Rome. This phenomenal spread of Christianity needs some explaining. And there, of course, there is an explanation. It's that the Christians, fired up by the Holy Spirit, were unable to stop themselves telling people about their encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. How Jesus had changed their lives. Now, part of the reason they went out from Jerusalem to spread the gospel in other places is because they were threatened in Jerusalem. They were, they were in danger of their own lives if they stayed in Jerusalem. So many of them, not all of them, uh, the main people of the church stayed in Jerusalem. We know that. But many of the Christians fled from Jerusalem. But wherever they went, <laughs> as Jesus said, out into the land of Judea, further on into Samaria, out into the other parts of the world, all around the, the, the uh, Mediterranean Sea for a start, of course. Everywhere they went, they were so full of Jesus and the truth and the power of his resurrection that they could not stop speaking about it. That's how the church spread and how it spread so quickly. And it's surprising how some of the bad things lead to good things. It was only their persecution in Jerusalem. It was only the hardship of the Christians facing death in Jerusalem that chased them out into all these places. And by the terror of persecution, that gospel was spread through practically the whole of the known Roman world at that time. In, you know, well under 30 years, how do the people who try to say, oh, the resurrection, it was written about years and years later. How do they explain it? And how do they explain what Paul writes in some of his letters? How do they explain what Paul preached, as you read in uh, the book of Acts? Because Paul centred almost all the time on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a strange little story of while he was in Rome... Paul, as a very educated man, of course, much of his time would speak Greek. And yet, perhaps his Greek wasn't quite as good as some of the native Greeks. And when he was in Athens, which, of course, is the capital of Greece, they misunderstood him because he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, in Greek, the word resurrection is Anastasia. Paul occasionally made words up, and it's just possible he made that one up. It means to live again, or even more literally, it means to stand on your feet again. The ana is again, and the stasis is the standing. So Paul used the word Anastasia for the the, um, resurrection. And the people thought, 
Who's he talking about? Jesus and Anastasia. I think you might have got the picture for me already. This is a, a man God called Jesus and a female God called Anastasia. So we, we know absolutely certainty from Scripture itself that uh, Paul was talking about the resurrection by no later than about 50 AD. So the resurrection is not something that was invented by theologians years and years and years later. It is something absolutely provable by history and out of scripture itself. And uh, people talk, you know, you know, like the, the so-called modern atheists, Richard Dawkins and so on. People talk about how scripture, the New Testament, cannot be relied on. Now, can I do this quickly? It's a strange thing, but in these last couple of days, something came up on Facebook, which was a so oh, there, straight away, a so-called memory. It's something I put on Facebook ten years ago, and it's come back up to remind me, to memory of what I put on ten years ago. Now, the thing is, and I, I just suddenly thought this morning, I really ought to have included that in my, uh, whatever you call it, in my PowerPoint. Uh, but it's, that's why I brought all this gadgetry, because I, I thought, just before I came out this morning, I should have had this with me. This is something that my, uh, my niece in Scotland who suddenly decided to start putting things on from the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Science and Understanding, which is a total misnomer. She started putting things on. And my wife, must be ten years ago, said, why don't you answer some... Hey, not why don't I answer, why don't you answer some of these things? So I did, I put some... Every time my uh, niece in Scotland put one of these uh, anti-Christian things on, I put some sort of answer. I think she got fed up before too long because she only put another four or five on. But listen to this. Uh, and this will shake some people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking, I'm sorry. His heading here is... The King James Version of the New Testament. The King James Version of the New Testament was completed in 1611 by eight members of the Church of England. There were, and still are of course, no original texts to translate. The oldest manuscripts we have were written down hundreds of years after the last apostle died. There are over 8,000 of these old manuscripts with no two alike. The King James translators used none of these anyway. Instead, they edited previous translations to create a version that their king and their parliament would approve. So... 21st century Christians, that's you lot and me, 21st century Christians, 
<clears throat> believe the word of God is a book edited in the 17th century from a 16th century translation of 8,000 contradictory copies of 4th century scrolls that claim to be copies of lost letters written in the 1st century. That's not faith, that's stupidity. Now that will appeal to an awful lot of people who might believe it's true. What did I write? I started off the facts. The earliest, more or less complete, actual manuscript of the Greek Testament we have, that's the Vaticus and Sinaiticus Codices, date from around 350 AD. Okay, that's uh, 300 and odd years after the uh, resurrection. But their forms indicate that they are copies of earlier documents. Tertullian, around 200 AD, already refers to the New Testament as a collection of writings, and he listed, more or less, the ones that we already have in the New Testament. Later in his life, so earlier than 225 AD, he was condemned for teaching some things contrary to the writings of the apostles. So we've gone back to about 200 AD now, where the writings of the apostles were well known and circulated and people were discussing them. The so-called Chester Beta Papyri contain major portions of the New Testament dating no later than 200 AD. And there are manuscripts of the Syriac New Testament dated between 150 AD and 250 AD. You see, he's a load of rubbish, this, uh, this guy, this Richard Dawkins. And there are hundreds of fragments dated to no later than 200 AD. Well, I mustn't, ah, it's gone. I mustn't read it all anyway. But the point is, there are various papyri, papyruses, you know, and parchments, all of which have been dated to no later than 120 AD. We're going back to the lifetimes of the apostles themselves almost. And these various bits of papyri and uh, parchment contain within them, not, not in big long detail, but as commentaries of quotations, of discussions, these pieces of paper, shall we say, contain within them enough information to recreate the whole of the New Testament apart from two chapters, I forget which chapters. So, we actually, although we don't have a complete New Testament earlier than about 350 or 400 AD, we have literal, actual bits of paper right back to no later than 120 from which we can recreate the whole New Testament. And seeing that these pieces of paper are all discussions of the New Testament and quotations of it, it is very clear 
that the actual wordage was written many years before that. So the actual evidence we have, and in the uh, Rylands Library in Manchester, there is what is called the Rylands Fragment. And it's, it's not big, it's no more than 60 or 70 words, I think, but it is a very clear part of John's Gospel. And although it's not been exactly dated, you know, carbon dating and all that, it clearly dates back to within the lifetimes of the apostles. So, it's still on my uh, computer somewhere, but I've pressed the wrong button and it's just disappeared. But what I wrote at the end of this was that uh, Richard Dawkins either doesn't know these facts in which case form your own conclusions or Richard Dawkins does know these facts in which case form your own conclusions don't be afraid of anything that these so called new atheists say because they have not done their homework they have misinterpreted the facts now that was much longer. I say I picked my computer up almost as I came out through the door this morning, thinking it would be a good idea, and I've filled up a lot of time. So what I'm going to say, apart from just saying the resurrection itself has been called the best validated event in the whole of history, and that's before we talk about the spiritual experience of believers, so we can rely on the New Testament and the story it tells us. I'll just flick through these, the next few slides then, just so I don't take the time, because I'm making the point that not only is the cross in Jerusalem geographically the centre of the world, I'm making the point not only that the cross in Jerusalem is the centre of history, I want you to understand that the cross in Jerusalem, or more properly, the Lord Jesus Christ from that cross and his church that developed from that have been the absolute centre of the whole of civilization and all the things that we think of as natural. So, leaving my notes behind entirely, let's flick through what have I said. Social security, where did that start? That started with the seven deacons in the New Testament, yeah? Looking after the widows. But that was already part of uh, Christian theology as well as Jewish theology. Always look after widows and orphans and, and all the rest of it. But in, a, in the Roman times, when that was not the case, when it was every man for himself, Christian theology uh, led to looking after people and what we now know as social security. In Roman times, women didn't have any place in the Christian, even in the time of Jesus himself, uh, you have a look through your New Testament, see just how important women were in Jesus' work in his own lifetime. And women had a very special place in the church that they didn't find in the rest of society. And the value of children, you know, the Romans used to leave little babies out on the hillside. And if they lasted the night, well, we'll look after them. And if they didn't, well, they're too weak anyway, it's a good job. Uh, the value of children, you know... Let little children come to me and forbid them not. Uh, the place of children was very important and family life. The humanity 
of slaves, marriage and morality, all were built up around what the Christian church found leading from the cross in Jerusalem that was empty. The middle-aged monasteries and so on were the custodians of literacy, learning and education. They were the original hospitals, uh, centres of healing and medicine. And far from what some of the new atheists say, Christians have always actually been supporters of science. Uh, Isaac Newton, who sort of invented gravity and the, the laws of motion and so on, wrote much more about his calculations of when the Lord Jesus would return again than he did. He wrote a huge book, it's bigger than my Bible, called Principia Mathematica, The Principles of Mathematics. But he wrote far more on theology. Uh, And Christianity, despite what is said, have always supported science. And think about the people like George Muller, Okay, I'll I'll not tell you about him. You can find out about him if you want. Uh, Spurgeon the preacher. The leprosy mission. Nobody would touch a leper until... I think I just picked that up as I came out of the house as well. A pamphlet from... Well, I've lost it now, haven't I? from the leprosy mission, telling about how it was started. Nobody would touch the lepers. Leper became a name for some that you didn't go anywhere near. But in the mid-1800s, a man called Wellesley, I've forgotten, that's why I brought the piece of paper, uh, start, started the mission to leprosy. And the leprosy mission is still the major society in the whole world for dealing with leprosy. That uh, organisation invented the modern cure for leprosy uh, and it's still going, it still has a work to do but that came entirely out of people following the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ the Missionary Aviation Fellowship uh, and although they still do things like carrying missionaries and, and Bibles into strange uh, unreachable places they also have a medical mission. When people want flying out, you know, in, well, Papua New Guinea or South Sudan or various other places in Africa, there are villages that cannot get to a hospital except by a three-day Land Rover drive over mud tracks. Missionary Aviation Fellowship flies them out in three hours instead of three days and gets uh, people you know, people having, women having difficulty with pregnancy, people who've had bad accidents, so Missionary Aviation Fellowship although it is still uh, in a work serving missionaries and taking out scriptures it provides a, a medical air service where no government would ever want to and no private enterprise firm would ever want to uh, and you go on, David Wilkerson, you've probably read Cross on the Switchblade. And in our own times, urban outreach, all things uh, important to our society, and all started because of the Lord Jesus Christ in the hearts of his people and working through his people. Now, I just want to make this very last uh, comment that I've got up there. I think you can read it, can you? Uh, because I've been talking about the cross 
in Jerusalem. And it's so important, and yet in a sense, it is only important now as a symbol. So I just want to leave these thoughts with you. Not the cross, but the Christ. Not the symbol, but the saviour. Not the piece of wood, but the peace of God that passes all understanding. And I want to ask you, and I'm sure I would get the right answer if I asked you in personally in private, but I just need to ask you uh, as we close this morning uh, whether the cross of Jesus and Jesus himself is the centre of all that this church stands for and all that this church does and is he the Lord Jesus Christ the centre of all that you are and all that you do Christ is the centre Amen